Year was 1977 for me. I was. Uh, it was July. Um, I remember these two weeks back in 1977. Um, me and a bunch of other uh, teens from our church, about a dozen of us, loaded up a mobile home and traveled out to Denver, or not Denver, Colorado, but out to, close to Denver, to something called the Summit. It was not really your normal summer camp. It was like a two-week. I don't even know what you what you call it. It was kind of like a college type of focus deal, Um, and you went out there and they taught you basically uh, a Christian worldview, that was the whole focus of it, still, I think it still goes on today, I'm not sure, it's called the Summit, David Noble heads it up, and um, it it, it taught you not just, didn't tell you what to think, it taught you how to think, how to process all of life through a biblical, through a Christian worldview, and it was pretty fascinating, and I remember that week, because the highlight of that week for me, because I can't really remember anything specifically I learned, I'm sure I learned things that I carried with me throughout life, because that's the premise of it, not just what to think, but how to think, so I'm sure that it impacted my life, but the highlight for me was uh, we got to, uh, we had the opportunity, if we wanted to, to, to hike up Pikes Peak, they call that America's Mountain, I guess, um, and uh, it's about 14,000 feet up, I think. It's 21 miles by foot, and we hiked up that, and it was really awesome being up there in the clouds and looking out over God's creation, pretty amazing. And then we weren't supposed to, but we hitchhiked our way back down <laughs> because another 21, another six or eight hours down was quite, quite long. Um, but I thought about that song, Amy Grant, Mountaintop, you know, love to go up on the mountaintop, have those mountaintop experiences, you know, with the Lord, and uh, that's just a simple reality of life. And we use that, we use that phrase, um, uh, mountaintop, to express anytime we have kind of an emotional high in life. And I wonder, can you look over your life and say, I remember a mountaintop experience or two throughout my life, in my past. Maybe it was a va- vacation you took, maybe... Um, it was uh, a country you visited. It could be any number of things that you've been through in your life that you look back on, a moment you remember, an experience you went through, and there's this great emotional high attached to it. You know, for us as believers, though, we really want to have more than just emotional highs because emotional highs really aren't that great. We really, what we really want is to get beyond the, the emotional experience to a spiritual encounter. And when we have these, these mountaintop experiences, we want them to be more spiritual than just emotional. And uh, that's the reality. Now, don't get me wrong. We're both spiritual and emotional creatures. So there's nothing wrong with our emotions and experiencing things. And when we sing, we should, we should feel things when we sing. And we should feel things out in God's creation. But we want all of our emotional experiences to be more than just that. But really spiritual encounters with God. Um, Emotional highs only last so long, they're not able to produce lasting change, and they bottom out with the slightest amount of adversity. So you don't want to build your life on just emotional highs and emotional experiences. In fact, uh, let me just say, here's today's big idea. An emotional high is worthless without the establishment of deep spiritual roots. And so we can have mountaintop experiences that have deep spiritual roots that, that underpin them, and at the same time, they are emotional highs and, and, and they're, they're things we look back on fondly and can remember and we want both of those things to kind of work together as I look over my life I can think of lots of experiences that would fit that bill you know I had years and years and years of summer camp as, as, a, as a kid going as a, as a camper and, and on up to when I was kind of leading camps and working with kids and 
every, every summer. It would be the highlight of my year. It would be like, that was just like a mountaintop experience. But there was a real deeply spiritual encounter attached to that. And I can think of conferences and concerts and other things over the years that I would say kind of fit the bill as well. Of course, that moment on Pikes Peak really is probably the most memorable mountaintop experience. And it really was on top of a mountain. Now, the truth is there is something about mountains uh, that do enable us to k- kind of connect with God. There's something about it. And I think because we get up there and we're kind of captured by a sense of God's awe all around us. And even the most secular person can be taken in uh, by a sense of God's awe of his creation, even though they may not connect with him or realize why it is so amazing to them. Um, but there is something about being out in nature and especially on top of a mountain looking out over God's miraculous creation. We're in week five of this series, The Power of Worship, Living in the Moment and Transforming the Day. And today, we want to talk about the power of worship from the top of the mountain. And we're going to be in Psalm chapter 24 today, Psalm chapter 24. And so just to give you some context about this psalm, Psalm 24 is when the ark is returned to Jerusalem. If you know the story at all, there was a a moment in time back in Israel's history when the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was where the presence of God resided. It's like this was the, the place where God had them build this box. And then he said, my presence. The, the Ten Commandments were in there and a few other things. And it represented, it was the, the presence of God was with this box. And so there was a time once at war when Israel had their Ark of the Covenant stolen. And it went over to the, to the Philistines, and they had it for about seven months. And it caused them such headaches that after about seven months, they got on the phone, you know, they call up Israel like, hey, you got to come get your ark and get it out of here. It is causing us nothing but headaches. That's a funny story in the Bible. And uh, so they, they come, and they get the ark, and they take the ark, and they put it in storage. So much for them valuing the presence of God at that time. They just didn't understand it. And so they put this ark kind of in storage and it sits there for a number of years. And this, this is where we pick up Psalm 24. About 70 years after losing the ark in war. And it's been in storage all this time. And I think 70 years is what one commentary said. There's different math you can do. But we'll say about 70 years. David sets out to bring it home. And this is the psalm of worship he wrote when he was safely back in Jerusalem. It is a time and a psalm of great celebration. Here comes this ark that is the presence of God coming back into Jerusalem. And so they're celebrating this. It's an amazing time. And that's where we pick up today, Psalm chapter 24. And we're going to read through part of this. Uh, We're going to read through the whole thing, but we're going to break it up into two verses. There's like two stanzas here, and we'll read these. Here's the first stanza. Cindy read this for us earlier, but let's look at it again. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend? The hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Selah is just kind of like a pause. It's like a musical term that says there's a break here. It's like... This is the end of the first stanza of this song. And just note there, when he says, 
Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? That's really just kind of get the imagery uh, of just kind of going higher in worship as, 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 your, as your roots go deeper, as your spiritual encounter goes deeper and your worship can kind of go higher at the same time. And that's kind of the reality there. It, it's, just, it's just experiencing more and more and more of God's presence. That's the reality. And then notice that last verse, such is the generation of those who seek him, and that word seek has the implications of worship. Such is the generation of those who worship him, who seek the face of God, who worship the face of God, who long to see the face of God. So there's this idea here, this sense here of going up this mountain, going up this mountain in worship, going up this mountain in praise. And as I said, there's two stanzas to this psalm, and at the same time, there are two questions that this psalm, I believe, answers for us, and we're going to look at those this morning. Look at two questions. Here's the first question, okay? And just think about the significance of these questions that are answered when we worship God, when we take the time to have these spiritual encounters that deepen our roots and, and allow us to climb up the mountain in praise and in worship. First one is, who am I? Now, let me just say, this is kind of the indirect question. I'll give you the direct question in a minute, but this is kind of the indirect question that we look at in this first part of the passage. The uh, direct question would be, well, here's what it says. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. And so the direct question here, you can see it, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? That's the direct question. But here's what David's, I think, really asking. He's really asking us the indirect question uh, of who am I? So here's the, the, the sense. You've got to kind of juxtapose that with the first two verses. First two verses say what? God created this entire world. He established this entire world. He built it all. And he created you. And he created me. And he put us on the planet. And he owns everything and everyone. So he's certainly worthy of our worship, right? And, and here's kind of, I think, David saying, in lieu of such an amazing God, I, I, he just feels unworthy. Who, who am I? To climb up the mountain of God. Who am I to stand in the presence of God? I think there's a sense there of unworthiness that undergirds what he says. There's the indirect question then. Who am I? Who am I to climb this mountain? Who am I to stand in this holy, holy, holy place? Now, David, of course, answers his own question. He has those three qualifiers in verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. But here's the thing. If we really want to understand kind of what's going on in David's heart and what's going on in David's mind, we have to go back and unpack this a little bit more. We have to go back again to when this ark is being brought in because there's an experience. There's something that happens when they're bringing the ark back into Jerusalem. It took them a little time. I think it took him well over three months to get the ark back home. And why would it take so long? Well, we'll see why here. Look, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets and cymbals, celebrating God's presence. They've taken the ark out of storage and they're bringing it home. And it's a celebratory time. This is a great, great, great time. And then there's this oops moment. 
And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Yuzah put out his hand uh, to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Yuzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there besides the ark of God. Now, sounds kind of extreme, right? Here's this guy just trying to protect the ark, just trying to steady the ark, doesn't want to land on the ground, and he is struck dead. And, and the idea here is that they're really disrespecting God's law. There was laws for how to carry the ark. This is the presence of God. This is a really important thing. And, and they're, they're, certainly they're rejoicing over this, which is honorable, but they're not handling the ark the way the law told them to kind of disrespecting God's law. And David, look at David's response. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. It's kind of like, well, I don't, that seems extreme, God. And the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and, said, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David is both angry at God and afraid of God at the same time. And, uh, and it's like, man. And so what does David do? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, and he's a little scared, so David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. That's a fascinating story to get into as well. But just notice the underlying principle here, to have the indwelling presence of God is to be blessed. And when they had the ark, which contained the presence of God, and when it was stored in this, this, just this normal everyday, he's a Gentile of all things, Obed-Edom the Gittite, they stored it in his house, and for the next three months, he is, ex is extremely favored. I don't know what that meant. Did his wife have all kinds of children? Did, did they get really rich? I don't know. But they were blessed over those three months. And so David goes on and David picks up the ark and David will eventually get the ark back to Jerusalem where it's supposed to be. And so just think, this is kind of on David's mind when David's here thinking, you know, who can climb the hill? Who can stand in his holy presence? I mean, he, he just saw the glory of God. And so there's a little bit of fear and a little bit of uh, holding back here that's in his mind. How do we build deeper roots for higher worship? So what do we do then to climb the mountain? And let's look at those three things that David said. He gave us three different um, things in that verse of what it takes to climb the mountain and to, to be in God's presence in worship. Um, we'll look at them. So first is our identity. This is the right to worship. He says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. If you have clean hands and a pure heart, then you can ascend the hill of the mountain and you can worship the Lord. And this would be our identity. This would be the right that we have to worship. See, understand something here. Again, we're reading, we're reading David's mail. We're reading David's worship songbook back from the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, under the law. Today we're in this dispensation of grace. We're in what's really like, the, Paul calls it the new covenant, where he ministered under the new covenant of grace. It's not like it was in the Old Testament. And so today, our identity, we, because of Christ, we have clean hands and a pure heart. We have the right to worship. 
You know, it's fascinating when you think about, and, and just, just a note here, I said this a couple weeks ago, remember, worship does not draw us closer to Christ. There's this thought in worship, you know, we worship God and, and, and it draws God closer to us or Christ closer to us. No, it just makes us more aware of his presence. Think about it this way. For years, they have looked for what? They want to find. One of the greatest historical artifacts they want to find is what? The Ark of the Covenant. Oh, they would love to find that and uncover that. And so they looked and they looked and they looked and they can't find it. And what they don't understand is the Ark of the Covenant was already found. The Ark of the Covenant today is where? It's right here. This is where the presence of God is. Worship doesn't make me any closer to Christ. It makes me more aware of the presence of God. And today the Ark of the Covenant is right here. And I, through my identity in Christ, I have the right to worship. So if we want to go up the mountain higher in worship, what needs to happen is that we need to take our spiritual roots deeper. We need, there's something about understanding the theology of our identity, of who we are in Christ. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we've read this throughout the series. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I can present myself as a living sacrifice. Why? Because I'm holy and acceptable, because of Christ. That's why I can. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I have clean hands. I have a pure heart. We said it two weeks ago. I will worship because I am able. I am able because he has made me able. Now, here's the thing. I know, I talk about this all the time. I'm always talking about our identity in Christ, right? Can, can I talk about that too much? Can I beat that issue too much? Let me tell you why I always talk about that issue. This is my truth. I know this is my truth, and I'm guessing it's your truth. Think about it this way. As much as I talk about our identity being in Christ, just think about this. As much as I talk about that and reinforce that, Satan continually undermines that. As much as I'm here telling you every Sunday, don't forget, don't lose sight of the fact that your identity is in Christ, that he defines you. Not the stuff of this world, not the idols that you hang on to, not your past, not your present, not your pain. What, what defines you is who you are in Christ. As much as I reinforce that, Satan comes along and he is continually telling you that's not true. He wants, to do, wants us to define ourselves by our sin, our shortcomings, our failures, our past, our pain, our doubts, our fears, our idols. He wants to replace God's mercy with guilt, God's grace with condemnation, God's hope with despair, God's joy with regret, God's forgiveness with fear, God's assurance with doubt, and God's victory with defeat. He's doing that every day. So every Sunday I'll stand up here and say it again. Do not forget this week. There is this thing called the theology of your identity that you are defined by Christ that your heart is like the Ark of the Covenant, that the presence of God indwells you. Never lose sight of that. Think of it this way. What's, what's the name of a really high-end restaurant? Maybe think of a really name of a really high-end restaurant. Okay, how about, anybody ever heard of Ruth Christ's? Ruth Chris is a steakhouse, really high-end. It's in the Amway. So let's say someone gives you a card to Ruth Chris and it's got your name on it. And basically, any time you go to Ruth Chris, you can turn the card in and get a free meal. Any, you can, every day. And so you get this card and you don't understand the card and you look at it and you think, oh, what's this? Oh, this is one of those 10% off deals. Well, 
That's not going to help me. I can't hit Ruth Chris. I mean, you know, that's 10%. You're going to make. So you never use your card because you never realize what you have. And the point is, that's kind of like what we have in Christ. We just don't realize our identity in Christ. We just don't realize what that really means to our everyday existence. And we lose sight of that. That we have 100% of Jesus Christ indwelling us. And we just need to understand that. So, want to climb the mountain? You want to go deeper in your encounter and higher in your worship? You have to start with your, with your identity, your right to worship. And then there is your idols, the obstacle to worship. We talked about these last week, right? But look what David says. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false? And David understands this as well as anyone. You know why David is said to be a man after God's own heart? You know the one thing that really separated David from everybody else in his day and age? The one thing, Dave, one sin David never committed? He never lifted up his soul to another idol. He never worshipped another idol. He just didn't. I love, Andy Stanley said, he did a series on David. I love what he said about David. He said, David never confused himself. David as a king never confused himself with the king. David looked at himself and said, I am a king, but there is the king. And he never confused himself. And he never lifted up his soul to another idol. And the reality is, we talked about it last week, that our idols can take us captive, that our idols can consume us, that our idols can steal our song and steal our worship. Remember this verse from last week, Psalm 115, 8 and 9. Those who make them, these, these idols, become like them. So do all who trust in them. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Because as we've said throughout the series, right, what we are worshiping, we are becoming as our deities shape our identities. Yes, we are defined by Christ. That's who we are. And all the more sad when we allow an idol to come in and begin to shape our life. So just understand this and understand that, that what idols do is idols come and they try to redefine us. The idols come along and try to redefine me, try to tell me who I really am. Try to tell me that's not who I am. I'm not who I am in Christ, but I am what this idol says. Here's some of the idols. We talked about some of these last week. Control and power and fame and celebrities and science and pleasure and money and materialism and work and career and religion or legalism and people. Your spouse, your kids, approval of others, self-image, your past, your pain, your problems, your intellect, your knowledge. These are all the things we can worship. These are all the things that can define us. And, and it's like, no, we're defined by Christ. You can see the connection here that our idols try to redefine who we are supposed to be in Christ. They attack that theology of our identity and again how do we know what our idol is we said last week it's what we it's what we put our trust in it's what we value those are what our idols are and it's so important understand it is so important that whatever you put your trust in is what you find your hope in so ask yourself can this can this thing that i'm trusting in and valuing can it really can it really when the chips are down offer me hope only christ can so how do we build this these deeper roots for higher worship. It starts with our, our identity, our right to worship. It goes to our idols, the obstacle to our worship. And then there is this thing called our authenticity, the heart of worship. He says, and does not swear deceitfully. There's this thing of just being authentic with God, being honest with God. He can see inside your heart. He knows everything you're thinking and feeling. 
We don't need to make we don't need to make false promises. We don't need to pretend we are something that we are not. One of the things we see throughout the Psalms when it comes to worship is the sheer honesty and authenticity of all the writers. The psalmists do not wear masks. Think about it. The psalmists do not pretend to be something they are not. If they are happy, you know they are happy. If they are scared, you know they are scared. If they are tired, you know they are tired. If they're hurting, you know they're hurting. And if they're angry, you know they're angry. When you read a psalm, you say, okay, that's how that psalmist, David or Asaph, whoever, that's how they were feeling. And so much of our relationship in our worship, we come to Christ and it's like we just kind of, we can't really show him who we really are. We kind of we hide who we really are. And it's, again, it's not like God can't handle our emotions. He can and he will handle them. And this is the heart of worship, being our authentic self, bringing our authentic self to God so he can meet our authentic needs. One illustration of this is the woman at the well. I thought of her. We're not going to read her story or anything, but the woman at the well comes to Jesus, remember? And she's the woman who had multiple husbands, several husbands, and she was divorced several times, and then she had a live-in boyfriend. And Jesus comes to her, and it's a fascinating story. He comes to her, and, and basically in one simple little conversation in an afternoon, he radically transforms her life and her identity. Just changes her, just like that. It's an amazing thing. One thing Jesus does is that Jesus takes her to a place of authenticity. If you remember the conversation they had, Jesus asks her about her most intimate relationships, knowing full well how messy they are. He doesn't avoid the difficult, messy parts of her life. He goes right for it. And I think there's three things we can learn from her story. First, that our idols lie to us. Now, it's not that we don't know our idols lie to us sometimes, Sometimes, I, I, I don't know, we just kind of like the lies that, the, that our idols tell us. Sometimes we are convinced that we think we like the way they define us. Our idols come to us and they lie to us and they tell us something and we think, you know, I, yeah, I like being the person with money or friends or I like being the person who has everyone's approval or I like being the person with that home or that car. I like being the intellectual person or the hard worker or the religious guy. I like being the person who always has fun. Yeah, I really, you know, and deep in our heart, that's not true. Deep in our heart, when the rubber hits the road, when we're all alone, we look in the mirror and we think, I don't really like this. It's not the kind of life. I'm, my identity's in Christ. This isn't the way I want to live. But out there in the real world, how do we live? And our idols lie to us and we sometimes buy into the lie. So here's this woman who's like, I mean, what is her idol? Well, always having a different guy. And the minute one relationship goes bad, she's got another guy, and she's always showing off her latest guy. Here's my latest guy. He's better than the last guy. And she's not really happy. And Jesus calls her on it. Pretty fascinating. The second lie, the second lesson we can learn here is that our idols don't only lie to us, our idols hide the real us. Our idols hide the pain, the real pain we feel, the real frustration we feel. The, our idols let us pretend that everything's okay when it's not. This is especially true for those out in the world who don't know Christ and, and whatever their idol is, it's just they're just kind of hiding their real hurts behind that idol. But for all of us, we can, we can be struggling in life and we can just pretend like it's all okay and we can have idols and things that just kind of hide what we're really going through in life. 
And I just think it's fascinating that Jesus approaches the woman and gets right into her dirty laundry. And at the end of the conversation, she is worshiping him and exalting him and telling everybody else about him, the one who exposed her dirty laundry and brought her such joy and peace. It's fascinating. It's fascinating because we're the kind of people that would kind of like avoid the dirty laundry and avoid all that stuff and just say, Jesus loves you. Did you know Jesus loves you? And we wouldn't want to talk about those things in her life. How can it be that her life is transformed in those moments? Because here's the reality. Jesus can handle the real us. Jesus can handle the real us. He can. He can handle us in all our brokenness and all our messiness and all our ugliness. God can handle us the way we are. He, we look in the mirror and we hide from ourselves. And it's like, Jesus, no, you want to worship me. Be authentically you. Come to me in your brokenness and your messiness and your ugliness. And I can handle it. And I can help you understand this theology of your identity of who you are in me. He can handle our, our ugliest emotions, our most secret sins, our deepest pain. He can handle the real us. He can handle our dirty laundry. And God wants us to know that for our roots to grow deeper so our worship can go higher, we need to be authentically ourselves and to stop hiding behind our idols and behind our pain and behind all of those things in our life. In fact, you see how all these three of these issues that David raised, they all tie together. They're, they're just all kind of inter, interwoven. My idols and my identity and my authenticity, they're all wrapped up in one. Here's one thing Jesus said to this woman. But the hour is coming and now it is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the discussion about was about where's the right place to worship on this mountain or is it over in Jerusalem? Is it here in Samaria? Where's the right place to worship God? God said the right place to worship God is right here. There's a day coming when the Ark of the Covenant will be right here. My presence will be right here. We'll worship right here in spirit and in truth, in authenticness and in, in, in accuracy. Authenticity and accuracy define our worship. Hmm. Again, the big idea. An emotional high is worthless without the establishment of deep spiritual roots, of going and being honest and authentic with God, of this theology of our identity in Christ, of knowing who we are in Christ, of building that up and knowing that he can handle us. And so there's these two questions that are answered here in worship and we looked at the first one there, who am I? Here's the second question. Let's read the next set of verses, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle? Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, and the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory, the Lord of hosts? He is the King of glory, Selah. Second question is simply this, who is God? So it goes from who am I to who is God? And who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Who is God? Actually, the, the question there, it's re rephrased thrice. Who is this king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle? This is the very direct question that David asks. Who is this king of glory? Who is he? And he's going to help us process just a little bit here of who is this king of glory. And the reality is if we look back, we can see 
that the King of glory is defined for us in three ways. First, in verses 1 and 2, He is the King of creation. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein, for He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This King of glory is the King of creation, the King who created everything we see, who created you and me, who created it all, and is worthy, most worthy of our worship. You know, we often talk about what is it that sets our God apart from the false gods of the world, right? You know, one of the things we say sets our God apart is that He's the God of, for instance, uh, well, He resurrected from the dead, right? He, he, he's the God who became incarnated and then resurrected from the dead. But you know what? There's other gods that claim to have been incarnated and claim to have been resurrected from the dead. Did you know that? There are other gods that supposedly came down and were people and died and rose again. You know what sets Jesus apart from those gods, though? Those other gods that supposedly died and supposedly rose again? Well, here's the, the difference. When Jesus resurrected, he resurrected in his body. Yeah, they all resurrected in spirit. So, yeah, they resurrected. So the spirit supposedly came down and filled this person, and when this person died, the spirit resurrected back to his spirit. You see the difference? Our God had 500 witnesses who said, hey, he died and rose again. Jesus, he is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. He is the redeemer of the world, the lamb of God, the resurrected one. We saw him. We saw him die. We saw him come back to life and we heard him talk. So our God clearly is set apart from the other gods. But you know one of the, one of the things that really sets our God apart from the rest of the world too? He's the God of creation. I thought about that this week. I don't know of any other God that claims to have created everything. Isn't it fascinating that there are, there are the gods of fertility? You worship them and you'll have a good, abundant, you know, harvest. You'll have a good planting and a good harvest if you worship the right gods. You can read this in uh, old history. Then there is, of course, like the sun god and there's the moon god and there's the star, you know, different, different star gods. There's, there's the god of the sea and the god of the ocean. And I thought it is so funny isn't it, isn't, isn't it fascinating that our God created everything after which the false gods named themselves? This is the king of glory, the king of creation. Created it all. And there's false gods out there and they take a part of God's creation and say, well, I'm the sun god and I'm the moon god and I'm the ocean god. And I'm... Fascinating. He is the king of creation. And the reality is, the world tells us that we can see God through creation. All creation points to God. All creation screams. There is a creator. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There is no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world saying there is a creator. There is a king of glory. You go up on a mountain and you're just taken in awe by what you see because there is a king of glory. He's the king of creation. Romans 1 tells us this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What's the truth? That there's a king of creation. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. We have this, this thing that goes on and, 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 and it's discussed in the church today and, and people debate this. Well, what about that person in that remote tribe in some other land that has never heard the gospel? What happens when they die? They never heard the gospel. Well, the Bible tells us what will happen. The Bible tells us, first of all, that you can see the King of glory, that you can see him in creation, that you can know there is a God in creation. And then the Bible tells us this, that those who seek after God, that God, they will find him. And, and of course, the Bible tells us that no one will seek after God. So how does that work? Well, it works like this. God seeks us out in creation. God screams through creation. I'm here. I'm real. I created this whole thing. And we look back in response, and maybe we're in some other third, you know, some, some distant jungle somewhere, have never heard the gospel, never seen a Bible, never heard of God. We look at creation, we can respond and say, I want to know the creator. And the Bible says those who respond to God and seek God will find him. And I don't know how it works, I don't know how God works that out, but God will let them know. God will let them know. The king of glory is the king of creation. The king of the glory is also the king of the cross. Look at this. This is fascinating. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Who, he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. I, I, we've talked about this verse somewhat earlier, but I want to consider, consider this verse a little differently today. What if this verse here, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, what if that's God's problem and not ours? What if instead of being freaked out like David, like who am I to climb the mountain of the God? What if we looked at that like it's not my problem to climb the mountain. There is someone else who climbed the mountain, that climbed Mount Calvary and nailed himself on a cross so I could have clean hands and a pure heart so I could follow him up the mountain in worship. Wow. He is, the king of glory is the king of the cross. And climbing the mountain and, and defeating sin is not my problem, it's God's problem. That's the reality. I think to some degree, David can see beyond his present reality to a future reality. He can see beyond the ark. So do you get what we're reading here? He's looking beyond this box, this ark with the presence of God to this king who's walking in the kingdom, who's like, I'm the king of glory. He sees beyond the ark to the king of glory. And we see this throughout scripture. Commentators believe that, that when Abraham went up the mountain with his only son Isaac to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah, they believe that when he went up there, that he saw something else. Here's what it says, Genesis 22. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, and behold, looked up, behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And you can do a little bit of research and study, and it's quite possible not a guarantee, but it's quite possible that Mount Moriah where he offered up Isaac or was willing to offer up Isaac is the same as Mount Calvary where Christ offered up himself. And many commentators believe that Abraham on that mountain could look from Mount Moriah and see Mount Calvary. That he could look past Isaac, his son, and see the son of God. That he could look past the ram in the thicket and see the lamb of God. 
One time Jesus had a conversation. It's not on here. One time Jesus had a conversation. This is what he said. He was speaking to some of the religious leaders of his day. He said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Many believe that Abraham just understood that one day the father would offer his son. He knew that he had a son, but he knew there was the son. And I think for David, in some senses, I don't know what David understood here, but I think David can see beyond the ark. He can see into the future. And who can climb the mountain of the Lord is not his problem. Ultimately, it's the problem that God will solve. He will send his son to ascend the mountain, to hang on a tree. In a, great, in, in a great act of worship, because that's what, that's what Jesus did when he went up the mountain. Do you realize that? That was an act of worship. He was trusting the Father. He was finding his treasure in the Father. Climbing the mountain, uh, climbing Mount Calvary was an act of worship to the Father. And he climbed the mountain in worship, and now we can follow behind and climb our own mountains, and we can worship in our own sense of obedience. Just think about the difference of that Old Testament verse there. How it can be depressing and burdensome. Who can climb the mountain of the Lord? Who can? Well, if you do this and you do that and you do the next thing. But today, this side of the cross, we read it and we say, who can climb the mountain? Well, Christ can. Christ did. And now I can. And I have clean hands and a pure heart. And I'm the righteousness of God. And there's this theology of my identity being found in Christ. The reality is there was only one who was worthy to climb the mountain. And Christ did. He climbed it. The mountain we could never climb. And then finally, who is this king of glory? Lastly, he is the king of the crown. He is the king who will don the crown. He's the king who will sit on the throne. He is the king that will enter the kingdom. Lift up your heads, it says. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. He is the king of all kings. He is the king who will one day rule over everything and everyone. Here's a little bit of commentary from Charles Spurgeon back in the 18th century that will be very helpful to us this morning. Listen to what Mr. Spurgeon writes. When the king of England wishes to enter the city of London through the temple bar, the gate being closed against him, the herald demands entrance. Open the gate. From within a voice is heard who is there. The herald answers the king of England. The gate is at once opened and the king passes amidst the joyful acclamations of his people. This is an ancient custom and the allusion is it is to it in this psalm. Here's another piece of interesting commentary that will really add some flavor to this. Ancient rabbinical sources tell us that in the Jewish liturgy, Psalm 24, catch this, was always used in worship on the first day of the week. The first day of the week is our Sunday. So putting these facts together, we may assume that these were the words being recited by the temple priests at the very time the Lord Jesus Christ mounted a donkey and ascended the rocky approach to Jerusalem. Do you get the significance of that? It's the, it's the day leading into Passion Week and Christ is on the donkey. It's Palm Sunday. And over there in the temple, they're quoting, who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. And he's, he's walking in to the city of Jerusalem, ready to climb Mount Calvary, ready to conquer the cross and sin and death and hell. 
So just think about that. David exclaims about the king of glory coming in. And we can see this expressed throughout the Bible. It was expressed when the ark was brought into Jerusalem, the city of God, back in this very time. It was expressed when Jesus came into this world as a mere baby, the king of glory entering a broken, sin-cursed world. It was expressed when Jesus rode into Jerusalem to be nailed on the cross. It was expressed when Jesus ascended into the heavens after his resurrection, and yet not to be missed. Do not miss this one. It is expressed any time that an individual heart opens to Christ and the Savior enters into that person's life. See, he is the king of glory who enters in when he is welcomed in you welcome him in the king of glory will come into your life into my life i trust he's done that for each one of us in this room today that your heart is like that ark of the covenant that the presence of god in dwells you revelations 320 behold i stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door i will come into him and eat with him and he with me God is the one who will enter in. The king of glory will enter in if he is welcomed in. So let's wrap this up here this morning. I just have a little bit of, um, uh, just a little bit of application here. And you can just write down what you want to write down at this point. Whatever you want, how you want to apply this morning, these final few moments, here's what I'm going to say. Interestingly, sometimes it is hard to see the king of glory today, is it not? Sometimes it is hard to see the king of glory because of his creation. Because his creation is in this world is full of such darkness and brokenness and evil. Sometimes we look at creation, it's hard to see the king of glory. And sometimes it's hard to see the king of glory because we look at the cross, right? And we see him hanging on the cross, broken and mangled and bruised. And it's like, that's the king of glory, humiliated and defeated, hanging there. Dead on a cross. Sometimes it is hard to see the king of glory in this world on this side of the cross because he is not sitting on his throne. He is not donning necessarily the crown today. He is not ruling in righteousness and justice and victory. Yet here is the thing, and catch this, throughout time, throughout history, God has attempted to show this dark and cursed and broken world his glory. He called out a people, the Jewish people, who were to be his glory. At times he showed up in their midst. He was the glory cloud that would consume the temple or consume a mountain. He had them build the temple that he could actually come and live in. He had them build that box, the ark, that said, this would be my presence in your midst. He even sent, the Bible says, sent his son to show the world his glory. Another great mountaintop experience is the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John saw Jesus in all of his glory. Here's the thing. The song I played at the outset, Mountaintop, has this line in it. We love to go up the mountain, right, and worship with the Lord, and it's really great. But here's what Amy sings. But I've got to come down from the mountaintop to the people in the valley below. They'll never know that they can go to the mountain of the Lord. See, the amazing thing we can lose sight of is that it is through our worship as we are made more aware of his presence and glory, that we can realize that God wants us to be the vessels of glory today. The king of glory wants to ever shine through our brokenness, our pain, our struggles, and yes, our worship. You see, we can go up the mountain and worship today because Christ went and blazed the trail for us. We can follow him up. And the reality is, as we worship through our pain, our hurt, and our brokenness, people today can see the king of glory. Sometimes, ironically, it is our very brokenness. It is our very humbleness. It is our very pain 
that allows people to really see the king of glory. Think of that woman at the well who went back and told everybody, hey, I got to tell you, man, this, this, this guy knows all about me. She was a messed up, broken person. And you know what? The whole city, the whole city, the whole city came back to see Jesus. The whole city got saved because one broken woman let Jesus deal with her dirty laundry and get rid of her idols and lead her to the cross. How beautiful, how amazing. So let me encourage you today. The King of Glory, been trying to shine throughout all of eternity, is trying to shine through your life and my life today to a broken world. Let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you. Lord, thank you. Who is this King of Glory? Uh, we sing about him every Sunday. Uh, we love to read about him. He is our constant friend and guide. And uh, he, he, he's right here, closer than a heartbeat. And God, there is a world around us that is hurting, that is scared, that is broken. There are all kinds of women, men and women all over the world. They need to see you. Hopefully this week they will see you in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.